previously in the book of Revelation. <laughs> in our last ser uh, sermon on Sunday, we finished uh, our journey through the seven letters to the seven churches that are in chapters two and three. And we're just going to continue tonight, uh, and it actually pretty remarkably syncs up well with the message of Ash Wednesday and of with Lent. But if you remember, if you were with us last Sunday, the seventh letter to the church in Laodicea finished with this iconic and famous image from Scripture, which is of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. You've heard Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. This is an invitation to deep fellowship with God, which is what every one of us were created for. Every one of us, we were created for God and by God, for communion with God. As Augustine famously prayed, you have made us for yourself, O God, so that our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That's an invitation. It was an invitation to commune with the God of the universe and to find in him everything that you are longing for. That was the message to the seven churches. Whatever else you may or may not have in this world, if you have this, if you have God, then you are rich. So, and this, this communion with God is embodied, especially in worship, when the church gathers together for worship, because where else do we eat with God and he with us, as Revelation 3.20 said, than by faith, right here at this table. So that means that the early churches would have heard in that an invitation to worship. To open the door is to invite Jesus in so that we may commune with him, especially in worship. That's where we ended chapter 3, Jesus knocking on the door, inviting us to come to worship. Therefore, it's extremely fitting and interesting that the very next verse in chapter 4 shows us what? An open door. <laughs> Revelation 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. If we put these two things together, the implication is this. This is what's on the other side of that door. Jesus stands at the door and knocks, and this is what happens when you open that door. This is what happens when the church comes together for worship. See, once again, friends, John is, is he's, he's invited back behind the veil so that he can see and so he can report back to the struggling churches on earth. He's saying this, this is what's happening in heaven when you come together, church, for worship on earth. This is what you're participating in, even now, by faith. John gets a glimpse behind the door to see what the worship of heaven looks like. And friends, it is a glimpse that we so desperately need today, I think, in the church. Eugene Peterson wrote a book on, uh, about the book of Revelation that I've been reading through this series. He reminds us that, worship, that what worship looks like on this side of the door, on this side of the veil, is not always that impressive. <laughs> Listen to what he says. He says, outsiders observing these acts of worship that go on in the church, what, what do they see? they see? They see a few people singing unpopular songs, sometimes off-key. Someone reading from an old book and making remarks that may or may not interest the listeners. And then eating and drinking small portions of bread and wine that are supposed to give nourishment to their eternal souls in the same way that beef and potatoes sustain their mortal flesh. Now, sometimes we dress up worship and either with incense and with pomp, or maybe with lights and fog machines to try to make it feel more, more uh, substantial. 
the fact remains that worship on this side of the veil is always fighting against the mundane. Some view it as this sort of quaint relic of a tradition that people once believed. Some people will view it as a pathetic waste of time. Even today, on Ash Wednesday, as Christians are walking around with these strange smudges on their foreheads, and they are recommitting themselves to these ancient Christian rituals of worship, of fasting and self-denial, of prayer and solitude, of almsgiving. Even that word is antiquated, isn't it? It means giving your money away, just so you know. Of reading and meditating on God's word. All of this is begging the question, is this all just like meaningless traditions of men? Or is it a participation in something deeper? Something divine, even. Something profoundly and deeply important. As the answer to that question lies not on this side of the door, but on the other side. And thankfully, we get a peek at it. Just like all throughout this entire book of Revelation, we are to evaluate our circumstances on earth based upon that perspective in heaven. And in Revelation chapter 4, John is giving us a vision of the other side to remind the church on earth that underneath our ordinary Christian rituals is a participation in the very glories of heaven with saints and angels all the heavenly host, and the blazing glory of God's presence. That's what we're rubbing up against. And that's what I want to ask tonight. What's behind the veil of Lent? What's behind the veil of Christian rituals? What's behind the veil of worship itself? Well, remember, as we look at this chapter, remember the book of Revelation is written in symbolic form, not literal form. So we should not imagine that heaven literally looks like the things we just read with these six-winged creatures full of eyes everywhere, like just eyes. <laughs> like that would really, actually, that would be pretty cool um, if that was literal, but I don't think it is. Now, all of it is symbolic, and all the symbolism of this chapter is telling us one thing, and that is that everything is centered around God on his throne. Absolutely everything. The whole chapter is intentionally structured so that the throne of God is in the center and everything else is ordered around that. And brothers and sisters, I think that's telling us something. I think it's telling us that worship is a recentering. Worship is a recentering around the reality and the rule of God. Notice in chapter 4 that we read, at the center of heaven is God's throne. 17 times the word throne is used in just in chapters 4 and 5 alone. Because what do suffering churches on earth need to know? They need to know that there's a throne above all thrones. That they worship the king above all kings. That history is not ultimately in the hands of Caesar, like their king back then, or any other earthly king. It's in the hands of the king of kings. Psalm 146, verses 3 to 5 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. Brothers and sisters, all earthly rulers will return to the earth. Putin will return to the dust. And on that very day, his plans will perish, the psalm says. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. In the center is a throne, and the one sitting on that throne is God himself. And since God cannot be seen or described, he is symbolized here. 
in, dazzle, in a dazzling display of precious stones, of jasper, carnelian, and emerald. All these are symbols. They represent the splendor, the radiance, the majesty, the glory of God. But notice also, there's a rainbow there around God's throne. What does that mean? Well, from the days of Noah, that's a symbol of God's mercy, of his promise to be gracious to his people. That means amidst this frightening view of God's glory is a promise of God's mercy to us, symbolized in that rainbow. Because, again, what does the suffering church on earth need to know? That, yes, you worship a God who is thrice holy, from whose throne comes flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, who will judge the earth. But, brothers and sisters, in his judgment, he will remember his promise of mercy to his people. We need to remember, as we just sang, that our God is merciful and mighty. He's mighty and merciful. God's throne is at the center, and then around God's throne. In verse 4, are 24 thrones where 24 elders are seated, clothed in white garments with crowns on their heads. I think this is most definitely symbolic of the fullness of the people of God from all times and all ages. This is the 12 tribes of Israel combined with the 12 Christian apostles. It's the old and the new. It's those who look forward and hope to God's promise and those who look back in faith to his fulfillment in Jesus. This is the whole church gathered and centered around God's throne. Because, brothers and sisters, what does the suffering church on earth need to know? That they are one with these saints. That their sins are forgiven in Christ. They have white garments. And that through the blood of the Lamb, they will indeed conquer, symbolizing the golden crowns of victory on their heads. The history is heading towards an end where we will rule and reign and dwell with Jesus forever. That he is the very center and the fulfillment of all redemptive history. Now notice also in verse 6, what else is around God's throne on each side are these four living creatures. One that's like a lion, one that's like an ox, one with the face of a man, and one like an eagle in flight. What in the world does this mean? <laughs> Well, if the 24 th thrones represent the fullness of the church, I think the four living creatures are symbolic of the fullness of the creation. That is of everything that has life and breath. The noblest of creatures, like the lion. The strongest of creatures, like the ox. The wisest of creatures, like a human being. And the swiftest of creatures, like the eagle. Notice, symbolically, they're full of eyes so that they can behold the fullness of the glory of God. They soar with six wings each. They're ready to execute God's command in an instant. One commentator called him God's royal entourage, ready to zip off and do his commanding. Day and night, they never cease to praise God simply for who he is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. This again, what does the suffering church on earth need to know? They worship the king, not only of the whole church, but of the whole creation itself. From him and through him and to him are all things. That God is at the center of all reality. As one commentator summarized, both nature and supernature, creation and covenant, elders and animals. 
He's the center. He's the fulfillment of all history, period. This is so cool. The creatures around God's throne, they're, they're wild, they're wonderful. It's fun to explore it, but they're not the main thing. The main thing is the one in the center. Everything else is accent. Everything else serves to enhance the glory of the one at the center. And this is seen in verse 9, when everything, everything that's around God's throne, the four living creatures representing the entire host of creation, and the 24 elders representing the entire host of the redeemed, what do they do? They fall down. They give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne. Why? We're only given one reason in this passage. Because he deserves it. Because he is worthy. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Simply because he's the creator and the sustainer, and as you'll see in the next chapter coming this Sunday, the Redeemer of all things. Brothers and sisters, there is no worthier center. So right here at the beginning of Lent, Revelation 4 is inviting you to worship. It's inviting you into Christian rituals that the church has been doing for thousands of years. But it is inviting you especially to look behind the veil of those rituals and to see what it's really all about which is an opportunity to recenter your life around God. It is an invitation to align your life with the God-centeredness of all reality. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller says that every human being has something at the center of their life. We have to, because we have to live for something. And Keller says, if you center your life on your partner or your spouse, you will be dependent, you'll be jealous and controlling. The other's problem will be overwhelming for you. He says if you center your life on your family or your children, you will live your life through them until they resent you or have no self of their own. He says if you center your life on your work and your career, you, you become driven, you become a workaholic. You may lose family and friends as a result. If your career goes badly, you may be, you may, you may be depressed. He says, if you center on money and possessions, you'll be eaten by jealousy about money and may do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle. If you center on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself addicted to something. If you center on relationships and approval, you will be constantly overly hurt by criticism or by losing friends. So if you center on a noble cause, something great like global warming, he says, you will divide the world into good and to bad, and you will demonize your opponents. He even says, if you center your life on religion and morality, then if you're living up to your standard, you will be proud and self-righteous. But if you are not, your guilt will be devastating. He says, see, but if Jesus is at the center of your life, and if you fail him, he will forgive you. Since everything else that you base your life on, you have to live up to it. But there is no other center for your life than the one who died for you. Jesus is the only one at the center who died for you, doesn't ask you to die for him. Keller concludes this. Everybody has to live for something. Whatever that something is becomes Lord of your life, whether you think of it that way or not. Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, 
will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, will forgive you eternally. And that's the invitation to Lent. That's the invitation from chapter four to center your life around the only worthy center there is in the universe, in heaven or on earth. Brothers and sisters, I invite you this Lent to find your center again, maybe for the first time, in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen.